Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome to the Company Watch Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Commercial and Financial Risk Analyst. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. We are recording today's episode at lunchtime on Friday, the 23rd of April. Um, we've got uh, four or five things to discuss um, today, all of which have been in the news over the last day or two. So we've got public borrowing figures um, this morning. And for those of you who listened to the Today programme, there was a kind of amusing, um, amusing take on that. So we'll um, we'll have a look at those in a bit more detail. Obviously, dramatically increased public borrowing from, from last year. Unemployment figures also out this week, which are slightly surprising. But again, headline figures don't always tell the story. So I, I think we'd like to, to delve into that a little bit more deeply. Um, inflation numbers and that I think is something we've we've picked up at various points haven't we over the over the life of this podcast so again maybe looking at that impact on inflation and interest rates and so on um and finally some some research that was was out yesterday on zombie companies and again this is a um a topic that is close to our hearts we've we've obviously done our own research um on this at various points um over many years so we'll we'll look and see what um i think it was begbiz um trainer had to say on on that so that's quite an interesting thing to look at so nick let's start public borrowing tell us the increase public borrowing um up from um a modest 57 billion in march 2020 to 303 billion. <laughs> What's an odd hundred, I mean, yeah. 200 billion, 250 billion increase? Um, it's that represents 14.5% of GDP. And that's the highest percentage of GDP that public borrowing has been since April 1946 in the aftermath of World War II. And this is the increase in, in, in public yeah. borrowing, isn't it, over that period? Yeah. But yeah, it's the extra borrowing. Um, mm. uh, Interestingly, the um, that's lower than the OBR has been predicting. Uh, the, the highest that the OBR, or the diarist warning, I suppose you'd, you'd say, uh, was that it might get to 394 billion. That was in their worst case scenario, worst, wasn't it? Worst, worst, worst um, case. Um, mm. The latest prediction of the OBR uh, linked to the budget was 327 billion. So it's coming in lower. Um, the messaging appears to be that it's to do with stronger tax receipts and the beginning of a recovery. Um, yeah. Well, whatever. Um, on that, uh, worth saying as a as an aside, neither the um, figures today from the ONS nor the OBR predictions include any provision for the write-offs on all those government loans. And you need to remember that the OBR thinks that the various government loan schemes will incur uh, losses of about 27 billion. So actually, if it, and it's perfectly fine that the government isn't yet looking at that number because frankly, nobody has the faintest idea what it will be. And that's likely to, to roll itself out over a longer period of time. As we oh. talked about before, you know, that's not going to be a sudden cliff edge of, um, no. of 27 billion being unpaid. It will be over a, a well, six to ten years. I think some of the some of the repayment terms are even stretching out that far. They are. So, so that's that's public borrowing. Um, moving on to unemployment, there's some really really mixed signals here. Um, everybody, when these numbers came out, uh, I think a couple of days ago, three days ago now, 
the headline was um, unemployment falls to 4.9%. This is the quarter to the end of February. Mm-hmm. And it was 5%, wasn't it, before? So it's fallen by 0.1%. It, it has. The, the uh, general consensus around uh, the world of economists was it was going to go the other way by 1.1%, up to mm-hmm. 5.1%. And um, what the uh, ONS says here is that they think it's being caused, the, the unexpected uh, drop, by a rise, this is double negative territory here, so I apologise, it's been caused by a rise in the inactivity rate, which rose by 0.2%, and they say large volumes of men have left the market altogether. Pass. Um, No idea. And we have no idea on ages or occupations or anything? Anything anything at all. It's just one of those throwaway remarks of of, of which the um, ONS are so beloved. Um, At the same time, uh, the going in the other direction, HMRC, which reports the number of employees on payrolls, company payrolls, said that they had fallen by 56,000 mm. in March. And that's the first decline for four months. So that'll be an interesting number. We'll keep an eye on that one because, yeah. of course, we've got the impact in at the beginning of April of the IR35 tax changes, which ought to, if it follows predictions, drive people into onto payrolls and away from self-employment. Um, in which so it case, could be that even that 56,000 drop is kind of understating yeah. in terms of, because that, that the IR35 rules were, are switching people essentially from being self-employed yeah. into um, a kind of employee um, role. Yes. Um, so, so we'll we'll watch that. Um, the other headline number that came with those unemployment figures was that the number of jobs lost since the start of the pandemic is eight hundred and thirteen thousand, of which eighty percent, or six hundred and thirty-five thousand, were people under the age of thirty-five, and half were people under the age of twenty-five. So you can see where the where the damage. Um, uh, yeah, is 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 being uh, felt being there, um, but again another bit of conflicting um, uh, information. There was a rise in job vacancies. The implication Which, is more, you know. Yeah, I mean, I suppose as we're as we're gearing up to the the kind of reopening of um, of shops and cafes and things, those, those companies that have not put people on furlough and actually made made redundancies or casual work or whatever, um, is starting to um, yeah. to be on the rise again. Yeah, the elephant in the room, of course, in all this is the people on furlough, yeah. 4.9 million of them. And the question really is how many of them will go back to work either before the scheme ends in September 21 or afterwards. And, and do we have any kind of predictions around yep. that? Are there? Yep. I don't ask me, don't uh, uh, press me on the source because I can't remember at this moment in time, but there are some predictions out there that up to 850,000 of those 5 million will not go back to work. And that would push the unemployment rate beyond 7%, whereas the ONS and the Bank of England are saying that they now think the peak for unemployment will be below their worst fears. So it'll be somewhere in the arc of 6 to 6.5%. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And I suppose we- next month will be the interesting thing in terms of furlough, um, and we'd hope to see... A reduction in the yeah. April numbers, wouldn't we? Of of people, you know, as as, as retail and um and outside yeah. hospitality opens up. 
yeah okay so that's a watching watching brief yeah inflation okay inflation um uh the cpi measure which is the preferred measure for just about everything now uh up in march to 0.7 percent from 0.4 percent in february driven so say the ons by rises in petrol prices and um reduced fashion discounting so clothing and footwear prices went up by 1.6 percent bank of england is saying that as you said earlier, Joe, conveniently, inflation will peak at 1.9% later in the year. Which, and that's a 2% target is what they're yeah, um, they aiming for. The vast majority of economists think it will be more than 2%. And that leads us to something, where Joe and I are going to tiptoe very carefully into this topic, because it's sort of above our economics pay, pay <laughs> grade. grade. But um, I think it was Monday or maybe Tuesday, it was a fascinating article in The Telegraph, a sort of deep dive um, stream of consciousness. And effectively, what it was warning about was the possibility of a repeat of what is known among the economists as the great inflation of the Johnson and Nixon years, when the US stoked mm-hmm a huge fiscal boom in its efforts to pay for the Vietnam War. And also there was the war on poverty at that time, same thing. Um, And and what happened was that uh, the government ran around spending money um, willy-nilly, and it was facilitated by a very loose monetary strategy by the Federal Reserve. As I say, this is is too technical. Uh, I have to say... I think it would be wise, it's would be fun to post a link. And I think it's worth 10 minutes of your time to read this thing. I'm yeah. not sure that everybody will get all of it any more than I did, but it's a really interesting it's an interesting picture, take on what take what on, could... on, on, on where mm. on where inflation goes, because of yeah. course the, the the higher inflation goes, the bigger the risk of a rise in interest rates. And then we're back looping back to our first topic of public borrowing. And you know the general consensus is who cares if the borrowings are three point three hundred and three billion or whatever they are because interest rates are so low. Exactly. But as was mentioned in that rather folksy take on public borrowing on the Today program this morning, a very high percentage of that borrowing, of that debt that's been generated in this last year, is held by the Bank of England. If interest rates go, and it's linked to bank of in, interest, in, interest rates, rates. Mm-hmm. if if bank of interest rates have to go up because of inflation, the government's financial position will be a lot more tricky than it currently is. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all it's all very um, interconnected, isn't it? And I think that the um, that inflation figure, as you say, that, that the pressure as that as that gets higher and higher, the pressure yeah. to to raise interest rates from, I mean, there's we were talking a few months ago about whether they would go negative um potentially i don't think that's off off the table necessarily either i think that was no a, but equally there's quite um, a lot of chatter in the uh, among e- economists that there will be a base rate rise of a quarter of a point later in the, later this year this year mm. as as inflation takes hold so mm. you know watch watch that space, watch your space. And, and and if you're if, if you're the treasury then worry about that space Right. Coming on zombie, to zombie companies. Zombie so, companies, beloved, beloved of both Joe and uh, and, and, and myself. Um, there's actually two bits of research. Um, you mentioned the Begbie's trainer stuff. Um, let me come on to that later. 
Uh, the Bank of America published research on Monday where they had looked at the prospects for businesses, companies in Germany, France, Spain, and Italy. And they're looking at, at a phenomenon, we call them zombie companies. They refer to these businesses as ghost bankruptcies. Mm -hmm. Different name, same Same, same principle. Mm -hmm. And their, their suggestion, based on their research, is that they expected that the number of companies actively doing business in these countries would fall by between 1% and 3% by the end of 2022. That's 76,000 in Spain fewer, 59,000 fewer in France, 57,000 fewer in Italy, and 27,000 fewer in Germany. The, the rate of attrition in Spain would be 2.5%. Yeah. And that ties into <coughs> some of the um, Atreides forecasts. Um, last year, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but Spain kind of leapt out as the um, as the economy in Europe, which um, they were most concerned about. Yeah, now, now, just let's do a read across. The UK rate of business failure, company failure, in 2020 was 0.35%. Pre-pandemic, it tended to hover at about 0.5%. So if the UK comes in... On, on a sort of comparative basis, at the lower end of the Bank of America's range, at 1%, uh, company insolvencies will double. If it comes in at the top end, they will go up sixfold. And as we've said before, there is no way the insolvency profession could possibly cope with that, mm. even if it was stretched out over 18 months. Um, it, it, it simply couldn't cope. So, so that's what Bank of America said. Um, Begbie's trainer um, came out, as they do quarterly, um, with figures for companies showing significant signs of financial distress. And this is interesting because this is slightly different from the way we would look at um, zombie company type um, metrics. You know, obviously, we're looking at financial health, underlying financial health, looking at account scoring you know, from our yeah, yeah. Um, base, aren't we? So, and what, what is it that, that Begbie well, have, have done? Yeah. So the red flag data um, is based, is much more event-based. So it is sort of uh, significant events like CCJs, um, late filing accounts. I mean, it's not as unsophisticated as, as you might think. It's, you know, it's really, it's a, it's a whizzy system. It's doing different things. It's not doing a deep dive um, financial um, analytics, but it's looking at really key signs of pressure. Um, and what they came up with is the figure that... Uh, in Q1 2021, 720,000 businesses were significantly distressed. Now, the point about that is um, not the absolute number, but it's up by 100,000 since mm. Q4 2020. That's 15% rise. And they say that is the biggest rate of increase in, in significant distress since they started tracking these things in 2014. So seven years. Yeah. Um, so we haven't got the financial, we haven't got the kind of financial crisis um, benchmark, no, which is which is where kind of a lot of these things we're kind of looking back to, aren't we, and saying, how does it compare to 2008, 2009? So that's not within that context, but even so. No, no it's not. Um, and it, interesting, a little, a little um, nib of information here. Although the impact is right across the whole economy, the sector worst hit or deteriorating fastest is transport and logistics. 
So Joe and I looked at each other when we were talking before recording and said, Brexit. Brexit. <laughs> um, London, of course, is the worst hit region because of hospitality. Yeah. Uh, in, in, inevitably. Um, but the the thing that comes across from both of these pieces of research is the same message that uh, an awful lot of businesses are being kept alive by government, by life support, financial life support. And we're um, still on that. I mean, I mean, that's really key. And I know we, we, we do say this often. It's still at end of June before the... Um, you know the inability to actually call call on debts furlough yeah. schemes running to september yeah. so even though we're starting to see these really positive signs you know we're, we're mm. all able to go out to the shops and we're able to go out and you know have a drink and have a meal out with a blanket or two maybe but um you know it's still we've still got life supports popping yeah, up yeah. the economy yes and, and and there's another angle to this there's it's not just the life support um it's quite interesting the chair of the northeast region of r3 the insolvency um, trade body was out this morning warning about overtrading about now growth this is interesting because i'm we we've talked in a previous life when we were actually able to meet in person and we used to do um, industry webinars didn't we? and we and overtrading was something that we, we talked about i think then could you explain yeah. that a little bit what's the what's the issue here yeah i, I mean the 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 issue here is that in normal times, if a company grows rapidly, the tendency is for it to be uh, slow in, in creating the working capital, the finance to support the stock, the increased trade receivables, um, and, and maybe other sorts of funding for additional production capacity, say. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it tends to be so, so you get stress and strain, and, and companies fall over in good times because they simply grow too fast. And they and they can't. And at the raise, point at which they realise they need the money, it's too late to actually. It's too late. The damage is already done. Mm. When you're coming out of a, a recession or the sort of um, major commercial shock that we've had with the pandemic, it's actually worse. And this time, worst of all, uh, you know, I've been through I don't know six or seven recessions, and what always happens is that the peak of business failures is a year to eighteen months after. The recession ends, and it's almost always like you know my my mantra with directors for two decades was growth kills more businesses than mm. recessions ever do. And what what happens as you come out of a recession is um, companies grow from a weak base. Their balance sheets have been damaged by the losses they've they've, they've incurred or the reduced trading they've uh, they've done, and. As we said, in normal times, they tend to be slow to replenish the working capital coffers. Mm-hmm. And so they, they get in trouble. Now, uh, it, the other um, aggravating factor is that the banks have come out of a recession too. They've had their loan books devastated by the recession, and they're extra cautious. I remember coming out of you know, the, the early 90s recession, trying to get the banks to lend into perfectly viable businesses it was very interesting because they were shell-shocked. And, yeah. and very cautious. So that syndrome is playing out. This time, the you know the icing on the melting cake is the problem that, of course, the banks have got severe lending indigestion. They've lent 76 billion under all the various loan schemes. And first of all, they'll be having to process the implications of that, you know, because round about the time companies need to be borrowing more for growth, 
there will begin to be the issues with with companies that can't yeah. start repaying. So there's going to be, and we've got to remember, although they're government backed, they are bank money. Yes. Now, I mean, the and government has says has allowed them to have work capital requirements, all the all those kind of solvency requirements that are required. But actually, yeah. it's that it's the bank's money, and the guarantee will kick in. I think is it after twelve months after 12 when months. the bank haven't been able to um, to enforce the, the to loan. recover. So, so um, you know, my 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 issue here is that I think um, funding growth as we come as we go into the recovery phase may be difficult, and, and unfortunately, a lot of businesses will trip over, mm. and, and perfectly viable businesses but who just simply don't get their ducks in a row in terms of funding funding the recovery phase. And it's a shame, isn't it? Because there's been so much work on um, alternative lenders and, you know, they've come into the market. And we mm. we saw from the British Business Bank um, SME finance monitor that was published, I think, mm. back in February, you know, the, the, the pandemic has really just eaten away all the gains that were made in terms of trying to, to get more alternative finance into SMEs. Um, and, you know, you've got to worry about then the viability of that of that model and, you know, how quickly that will be able to, to get up and running again. And also the appetite for interest. You know, if you've got a government back loan on the one hand that's charging 2% um, interest and then you're being offered, mm. you know, four, five, six, seven, you know, maybe higher percent interest yep. rates. That's actually yep. kind of almost like a psychological thing <laughs> to, to get your head around. And at the time when you realise actually we've got to, we have no choice. Again, you're just kind of pushing that decision further and further, further down the yep. line. Um, I agree, Nick. I wonder. I mean, you you had a quite a nice way of summing all this up yeah, um, yes, earlier. Yes, I wonder yes, whether I, you could conclude for us. Yes, I did. Um, the the thought that's been growing in my head as we've gone through this week is a sort of recurring theme with all of these various announcements, and I'd sum it up um, very simply as a sort of we know these numbers are awful but they could have been so much worse. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I described it to somebody um, a couple of days ago. Uh, there's a sort of background hum of cautious optimism. And I understand that because there's no doubting we're beginning to point in the right, right direction. We're beginning to see you know, light at the end of the tunnel, which is hopefully not a variant train coming the other way. <laughs> but what I think all of this overlooks is what we've just spoken about, which is the issue with overtrading and, and growth in the recovery phase and funding it. But it's also ignoring this hideous overhang of debt from the government schemes and all those unpaid liabilities, the seven billion of unpaid rent that the yeah. British Pro- Property Federation is, is talking about by the end of June, all that VAT and all that PAYE that's been deferred. So I, th- I think the answer is we are going in the right direction and there is reason for optimism, but I think it needs to be more cautious than what I sense is coming out of official channels at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. I think that's a, that's a good way of, of, of finishing. So to everybody for listening, thank you very much, Nick. Obviously, always a pleasure to have your interesting and, and challenging opinions. Um, <laughs> yeah, the pleasure for me too. <laughs> so until next time, thank you very much. Bye-bye. 